I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin and Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. A little bit late here getting started. Uh, had some car issues. Luckily, it was nothing major. We had uh, Dr. Moniz on the case, too. Well, I bought the car from him, so he knows it better than I do. Moniz, how long did you have that car, by the way, before I bought it from you? About three years. So you had plenty of time to get to know it. Yeah, I know a little bit about it. So, uh... <laughs> And we got it up and running, and now we're here, we're ready to go. And we have Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal Research joining us here in the studio tonight. How are you tonight, Andy? Howdy, gentlemen. Good to be here. We're glad you can come in anytime. You're you're always welcome. I'd say the door is always open, but as you can see, it it's, it's kind of a process to get in. So, <laughs> But uh, just knock on the window. We'll let you in. And we have uh, Andrew here tonight because we're going to be talking about an upcoming fundraiser that you'll be kind of hosting uh, you'll be leading a tour in the Freetown State Forest. Why, why don't we tell everybody about that right now? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, because Christopher Balzano now lives in Florida, <laughs> I am now the cardboard stand-in for Chris when anybody wants to know something about uh, Freetown. And uh, a group called Encore got in touch with me uh, via Chris, and they're putting on uh, some ghost tours of the Freetown State Forest uh, in June, two Fridays in June, uh, to raise money for... Um, uh, music equipment and musical education for kids in the Fall River, New Bedford area. And the <clears> gentleman, <throat> Brian, who put this together, I, I, I remember him trying to get in touch with us last year because he was trying to put this together, and things kind of fell through with that group that he was working with before. But now it seems like he's he's got a more solid base, a more solid plan, and it it sounds like a great idea. The, the thing that I'm worried about is, you know, what what are you going to encounter in the Freetown State Forest that isn't paranormal? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I have brought that up. I and, brought that up, but I think uh, safety in numbers. Yeah, probably. That's probably the best way to do it. Now, uh, what do you have planned for this, uh, for this tour? What do you, what are you uh, focusing on for hotspots? Uh, we're, uh, we're going to be focusing on the, uh, the reservation area, uh, right off Bell Rock Road, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, was it, uh, Forest Entry Road. Um, there are three, uh, hotspots, um, uh, in that immediate area. And, uh, then we're going to move right down to the, uh, the Asanet Ledge. And of course, uh, the area between the Asanet Ledge and the um, uh, the reservation has also been known for weird activity. Uh, Ron Kolick and his group can uh, attest to that, as well <laughs> as Chris Belzano. They encountered something between the ledge and the reservoir area that we still don't know what it was. And it it seems like for everybody that's tried to get out there and, and find these places, it, it's easy to get lost in the state forest, especially yes. if, you, if it's your first time being in there. Yes. So to actually have a guided tour, to have somebody that can take you through, point out where the activity has happened, and to have the the proceeds that actually go and benefit a worthwhile cause, it's which even is better. Great, yeah. Now, when when you're out, now this is going to be you said at night. Yes. So starting at starting at seven thirty, and uh, there will be a midnight tour for the real brave. And and how is it how is it going to work? Walking tour? Are we taking vehicles? Oh uh, yeah, they're they're bringing uh, vehicles, but the reservation is uh, very easy to uh, cover on foot. Everything's mm -hmm. within you know a few hundred yards of each other. I'm assuming everything's been cleared through the through the park rangers. Yes. And, yes. Is there any concern with, you know, going out there at that time of night? You know, you're going to encounter wildlife. You're going to encounter 
wildlife. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, my experience has been safety in numbers. It, uh, but I mean, just in terms of the, the safety of driving vehicles around. I mean, yeah. Moniz can tell you what happens when you're uh, driving at night and, and the deer, the, the deer decide to come out. Yeah. yeah. I had, uh, I'd let Brian know ahead of time that uh, we should have some vehicles that can clear the ground. I, I drive a Jeep so I can take at least three people, but uh, I believe he's already looked into that. He went and visited the area to see what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, forest uh, entry road, both upper and lower, um, uh, ledge road can uh, be pretty treacherous. Is, is there, um, is there a limit to how many people you're going to be taking with you? I believe it's going to be, uh, I think 15 people tops each, each tour. And how much are the tickets to go? Uh, $35. So that's which not Which is bad very, all, very yeah. reasonable because they will get their money's worth. The Freetown State Forest is a very spooky place, especially after sundown. Yeah. And there, there's enough stories to keep them entertained. And who knows, after the, the, my first night there with Chris and, and, uh, Ron Kolick and his group, it, it was a freaky night. Just don't lock your keys in your trunk. Oh yes, that, that that that's a whole other story. Yeah, do not lock your keys in your trunk because uh, AAA will not be able to find you for hours. <laughs> and that was and that was uh, Chris was supposed to be going to a book signing yes. in Dartmouth, then coming yep. here into the studio that same night, and we're we're yep. saying, what's happening? What's going on? Matt and I were going to do an investigation and a cushion it, and. Uh, uh, we, there's no way we leaving Chris there because we figured the puckwudgies would get him and that's it. <laughs> They're like, we've been waiting for <laughs> yeah, that's you. That's right. But something really free, real quick. Um, uh, uh, who was it? it was, uh, Aaron uh, Cashew, the, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. local filmmaker. He was, uh, interviewing Chris, taking advantage of the fact that Chris couldn't go anywhere. So we, we set up this, uh, little makeshift, uh, outdoor, uh, uh, studio to shoot Chris. And, um, the lights were getting down and I had a little, little spotlight for video cameras. We rigged this thing up and, uh, it was right when Chris was what talking about uh, Anawan Rock yeah. and and you know of course how you know the Europeans betrayed uh, the the Wampanoags and uh, right when he came to a, you know a final conclusion about King Philip and, and the betrayal and the surrender at Anawan Rock and the the missing wampum belt the light went off like right on cue and we could not get it back on and uh, we could probably until get it. he apologized yeah until he apologized it was pretty freaky we think uh, we think the uh, Wampanoags were with us that night and they locked Chris's keys in the car well it's it's interesting <laughs> that you bring that up because. You know, coming up in June, we're going to have our annual Bridgewater Triangle investigation episode. And I'd like to take things a little bit there. I haven't talked with the guys about this, so we'll kind of work it out here on the air. But uh, I want to take a different approach with it. Uh, in the last few years, we've really focused on all the different paranormal hotspots. We've talked about, you know, the school children that you can see in the Hornbine School windows. We've talked about so many different, you know, spectral aspects of of the area, of the entire, you know, Bridgewater Triangle. And I'd like to kind of put this year's focus on the battles of King Philip's War on the spirits of the Native Americans and really get in-depth with the history. And in that vein, I've uh, spoken, I've made contact with Michael Tugayas, who actually wrote a book about King Philip's War. And I want to be able to, to rec- I think I'm going to have to pre-record an interview with him because he's a busy guy. He's got another book coming out as well. But uh, we'll get something on with him talking about the history of the war. We'll bring Aaron in, who can talk about some of the, the uh research that he's done for his film, The First Patriots, and we'll send teams out to some of these hotspots where it's directly related to King Philip and to his people and to the actual battles that happened in this war. So, I mean, I think, you know, this might be a good chance to educate people while using, as we like to do, using the paranormal as a hook to kind of teach them about the history. Yeah, yeah, sounds like a great idea. So, are you in? Yeah, sounds like a great idea. We're gonna need, uh, we're gonna need all the help we can get. So teams, uh, I've already made contact with a few of you, but if you'd like to join us for the Bridgewater Triangle investigation episode, it'll be happening at the end of June. Uh, there's one 
week where the Red Sox, and I can check during the break, but there's one week where the Red Sox are playing an early afternoon game, so we know that we'll be able to get on at 10 o'clock. We'll probably be able to get on at 9 o'clock if we want to go three hours, which I think we probably will. And uh, if you want to get involved, just email me, uh, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and uh, we'll make sure that we get in touch with as many people as we can because I know that there's not a lot of areas out there um, – where we know for sure that a battle definitely took place. I know that it's 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 hard to pinpoint the exact locations. We just have a lot of monuments that are related to the people and related to the stories of the war. But if we can try to cover as many of those places, and as we've said before, Moniz, pretty much everywhere was a battle at some yeah. point in that in that very uh, brief and bloody well, war. Well, Matt and I were just talking about uh, this today, the fact that in Rhode Island there were two awful moments in the King Philip's War that are very haunted. We have the park down in uh, the Great Swamp Fight mm-hmm. uh, a monument down in uh, Charleston. Um, the park is closed at sunset, but I have heard that rangers say you don't want to be in there after sunset because of the things they see. And, of course, in Cumberland, you have the Nine Men's Misery, the first memorial to uh, soldiers in, uh, in North America. Not the, technically the U.S. Army. They were militia, mm-hmm. but they were um, captured by the, uh, the Indians after raiding Warwick and uh, Providence, and they led the uh, militia into a trap, and nine men were captured by the Indians, and they were brutally uh, killed in uh, Cumberland, and uh, they haunt the site. So, you know, we talk about the ever-expanding scope of the Bridgewater Triangle. Maybe yes. we need to cover those the, Chris, two This is what locations. Chris talks about, because he, uh, Cumberland was actually part of Rehoboth in the Plymouth colonies. All right. So yeah, then Cumberland, Rhode counts. Island was part of Rehoboth at one point. That counts. So we'll cover those two points. We'll try. You know, we should get in touch with those park rangers and see if maybe we can make some special arrangements. Uh, this for... is something I've been wanting to do because of the stories I've been hearing. So uh, maybe the maybe that's a good perspective for you guys to handle because Moniz, if we're gonna if we're gonna send somebody into a situation where it's a first time investigation, I'd like to send you know the the two most experienced trusted investigators that we have out to those spots, and then uh, that way there if the park rangers you know well, change I've their mind, been, <laughs> while you're like, out there. like with Andy, if I, I've already been out to these locations a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work in Cumberland, Rhode Island, to start with, so I've been down. To yeah, that's right. Matt nine, works nine, right near it. Yeah, I've been down to Nine Men's Misery a, a couple of times. Uh, I've been to the area. I haven't been out to where the monument is for the Great Swamp Fire because what they did, uh, unfortunately, uh, as Andy will verify, the Indians built a. Basically, it's a barricade around their settlement, mm. and all the women and children were outside the uh, barricade at the time that the settlers and the militia set fire to the swamp. So it, they killed a lot of innocent women and children as well as you know, the people. Could, the number could be as high as 200. Yeah. Wow. Well, then that it definitely sounds like you're the team to send out to those locations. And I think that if we focus on the war and we focus on the history of that, I just got a feeling that maybe it'll make some kind of connection with the spirits. I know we've had that happen before, where uh, I know that uh, Luann and Whaling City Ghosts, when they were out in Anawan Rock, you know, the way that they approached that investigation, they were very respectful. Uh, they were very reverential to what had happened there, and they got a lot of in response to that. And I think that if we actually show understanding, we show uh, not appreciation, but we show, respect. you know, yes, respect, respect. we show that we still care about the history of, of something that is forgotten. It is a forgotten war. And I think if we show that we might actually help make a connection and it'll be an interesting approach. And, and hopefully people will come away learning something that they didn't know about before. Cause I know every time I, I talk about it, I'm learning more and more about it. Yeah. I just recently sent uh, some of whaling city 
ghosts EVP recordings to an EVP expert I know, uh, John Hardy of Price Paranormal, mm-hmm. and he was able to pull more EVPs out of their recordings. Wow. Luann was like, couldn't believe it. They were like, they were like, can we get in touch with this guy personally? Can you give us your email? This guy's unbelievable. But um, uh, the bird call, did you hear the bird mm-hmm. call EVP? Yep. Well, when that was cleaned up, you also clearly hear a male voice say, Nitomp, which means friend. And that was what they kept saying all night long to show respect while they were there. And not only did they get Ketumpog being sung in a, like a, a powwow kind of chorus, mm-hmm. they got a male voice close to them saying, Nitomp. Which nice. I thought they well, showed their respect, and it and it drew things out that night. They got a lot of evidence that night. And the way, and I'm sure you're listening, but uh, hopefully get those to us, and we'll make sure that we play them uh, on the show. And of course, Whaling City Ghosts, as long as they're available, they'll definitely be one of the teams that are out there because they've got the right approach, I think, to making sure that they can make that connection. Uh, is there anything? I mean, and, and we're just freeforming it here tonight about the paranormal. So if you'd like to join in at any point and discuss with us, feel free to call in five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. 508 anything regarding the paranormal. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we can take your question that way. Also, Justin TV is broadcasting. Uh, if you go to Justin.tv slash SpookySouthCoast, or you just click on the Spooky TV logo at the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com, you can get the in-studio video feed, and you can submit questions in the chat room there as well. Those are the ways to get a hold of us. And we can talk about really anything. Uh, I do have a, a few stories uh, that I want to touch upon a little bit later on in the night. And, of course, we have the, the Week and Weird uh, as well. But it, with this, I, I don't want to say this newfound understanding, this newfound appreciation for King Philip's War, but let's – I don't remember hearing about it when I was in school. We never learned about it. Andy in Rhode Island, I don't know if it was no, a different story. No, I was in uh, my mid-20s doing uh, deliveries for Kent County Memorial Hospital, and I was down in Charleston, and I looked over, and this memorial caught my eye, and it was like, to the King Philip's War? Mm-hmm. And I actually, the first person I asked about it was like, yeah, wasn't that the King of England at the time or something? You know, there's <laughs> nobody, no, you know, there was this you know memorial that just was off to the side of the road while signed to the main memorial. And uh, when I asked around about it, people were like, oh, I don't know what that's all about. So I, I was rather, you know, embarrassed, you know, when I found out that this was something that was not being addressed. I remember King Philip's Beach. I remember King Philip High School. <laughs> but that's – and I don't ask me where King Philip's Beach was. I just remember going there as a kid. I have no idea where it was. But, I mean, that was my only exposure to it. And I had no idea who this King Philip character was. Uh, and knowing about – history as much as i'd learned i i went to school in my early days in plymouth so i'm learning about squano i'm learning about you know miles standish and i'm learning about all the you know the the good part of the pilgrim native american history i'm not learning about the dark side of it and even there it was never mentioned i never heard metacom when i was there I, i never heard any of that stuff and i'm embarrassed myself that i actually went to school in america's hometown and it was never mentioned in history class i took what Three years of, of U.S. history in high school, including, not to brag, but two years of advanced placement history, and not once did it come up in any of those classes. It's, it's, it is embarrassing. It's a shame that it's not taught. I mean, maybe we need to help develop some sort of curriculum for it with a lot of these people that we know that are going out there doing the research, Andrew, yourself included, and start developing something that the schools can actually utilize in some yeah, fashion. Yeah. You know, even if it's just, you know, getting Aaron Kadju's film into schools so that people can see right. it. But it, there has to be something done. How many people out there have heard of King Philip's War besides on this show? I mean, give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Matt, you want to take a break? 
All right, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll talk more about the paranormal. We'll take your calls. We'll just keep kicking it around here on Spooky South Coast. You know what? There's nothing sham about him. He's the real deal. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal is our guest tonight in the Spooky Studio, and you can see him, or at least the back of his head, on Spooky South Coast TV, which you can get to right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com, and uh, Luann is in there in the chat room, and she's got it going, so if you want to join in there, they're having fun, uh, and... I will mention uh, to those who, you know, might not understand exactly what King Philip's War was all about. Uh, I'll just give you a brief synopsis. It was uh, it was basically the first war fought on what became American soil, and it was between the Native American people and the English settlers. Because hey, guess what? The English settlers lied to the Native Americans. Can you believe that? So, uh, and we've talked about it here on the show before, and, and I mentioned that, you know, it's not something that's taught in schools. We are trying to educate people. This tour that's coming up of the Freetown State Forest, I'm sure, will include a lot of information about King Philip's War. And if people want to get involved and, and get one of those spots, uh, and they are going to go fast, you can email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, and we'll pass the information on to Brian, who's organizing the event. And now when you are out there and you're bringing people around and you're trying to, to show them these hotspots, are they going to actually be getting out of the vehicles, investigating themselves? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, because um, uh, the parking area in the uh, reservation is right there. I mean, you pull right off of Bell Rock Road, plenty of parking right there. The building right in front of you, the visitor center, which is always closed, it never seems to be <laughs> open, uh, that has been a hotspot for paranormal activity. So you're going to just tether a rope from one person yeah, to the just, next and everybody hangs on? And then we shall walk uh, probably only about 100 yards uh, into the woods to um, the, uh, the the powwow meeting area. Mm-hmm. There's a um, sort of a covered eating place, sort of like a, a picnic area where they can set up, you know, barbecue grills and that sort of thing and sit at benches uh, in uh, numbers. But uh, only about maybe 50 yards behind that in the woods in a pine clearing, there is another uh, powwow uh, meeting area. And uh, there's been many strange things seen in both locations by many people even during the day and it's important to note for one thing it's it's going to be dark it's going to be very dark uh because even in these areas they're so heavily wooded and now this time of year where the trees are starting to come back to life and you're not going to get as much moonlight as you would you know in the fall so it will be dark. So definitely dress appropriately you know wear something reflective so that if somebody's shining a flashlight yeah plenty of bugs absolutely Especially uh, in that area, which luckily we're not quite into Triple E season yet, but that yeah. is a very big area uh, for mosquitoes. Um, and also, uh, one other thing for people that might be concerned about this, 
you've heard the stories about the cult activity and the, the drug activity that goes on out there. And a lot of that stuff doesn't happen in the areas where you are. It's going to no, be, no, that I, stuff happens in the deeper forest where it's away from where the regular patrols would be. Actually, everybody I've ever run into that forest has been anything but creepy. I've, everybody I've <laughs> met, even a group of hunters with shotguns back in uh, November were, uh, awful friendly, which I appreciated because I wasn't armed at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and when you tell them that you're out there hunting too, just yeah. something different. Well, one of the park rangers had uh, come by uh, when I was there in uh, November, and uh, uh, Matt and I were uh, helping a film crew out in the area from Philadelphia, and uh, one of the park rangers came by and drove through the woods just to let them know there's going to be a bunch of crazy people looking for ghosts and UFOs out in the woods and to, to look out for them, but they were clearing out by the time we got there. That, and that's true. And that time of year, you must have to wear, like, you know, safety orange yeah. while you're out yeah. there. Although Moniz probably goes out there with his uh, handler head, his <laughs> handler, uh, headset there, and, which he probably dug out of the side of his car that time. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah really. I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, too, about the Freetown State Forest. For those who have never been in it, it's not like... You know, when you go to Mile Standish and you're you're driving these well-paved roads and you're you're going from campsite to campsite to pond to pond, or or some of these other state forests where it's kind of like a nice leisurely cut through to get from one spot to another. I mean, this is kind of remote. It is, and it you're is. you only have to go about five feet in and you're off the beaten path. It is the uh, the dark forest. Now, when when you're out there and you're doing your investigations, I mean, how much activity have you come across? You know, besides what we've seen captured on video or uh, I, I would think the thing that I missed, but I was on the investigation that night, was uh, uh, Ron Kolick's group brought a FLIR imager with them. Mm-hmm. And as they were going from the uh, the powwow site through the woods using a GPS system so they wouldn't get lost uh, by the uh, cover of a full moon, uh, they were uh, scanning the woods with the, the FLIR imager and watched a distortion form a few yards away from them in the forest. Now, wow. the, the FLIR imager clearly shows the gray and white features of the trees and the, and the shrubbery and the space between it. And this anomaly just uh, formed right in front of them and slowly but surely got about four feet in length, and they swear it had a face on it, and it started to come towards them. Uh, when they told Chris and I that story, because we went in with my Jeep with all the camera equipment we were carrying, we weren't going to hike through the woods with all this <laughs> camera equipment. And uh, when they had uh, told us the other uh, story about it, uh, later that night as we were going back, I took Ron and the ladies back, and Chris walked back with the group, and when they got roughly in the same vicinity where they had seen it earlier, they fired up the FLIR again, and there it was in a different spot. And Ron, Chris got to see it before Ron Kolick's guys took off like Scooby-Doo and, uh, you know, ran off with the $10,000 images. So Chris only got about maybe a three-second glimpse, but he said the thing was freaky. That might have been enough. Yeah. yeah three seconds yeah. might have been enough. And when when you're out there, you're doing these investigations, you're checking out this area i mean obviously the fact that it's very creepy you know that kind of enters into your mind as well but also just the the natural things you have to be afraid of the natural things you have to be i don't want to say afraid of but aware of yes i mean you, you well, never know when you're going to fall into a sinkhole ticks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or t- yeah <laughs> ticks. i mean matt and i went out there matt Coss and i went out there one day and <laughs> this is this is classic this is like the classic story of an adventure between me and Costa. This is, I, I can't, from truck surfing to, you know, all the different crazy stuff we've done. This probably takes the cake is, it's just being like the dumbest thing ever. But we got to the ledge and we wanted to go to the top and we hiked. 
for the first time probably in 10 years, we hiked <laughs> up the side of the, the, the ledge to get to the top. <laughs> then when we got to the top, we're like, oh, look. There's a road. a road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could have just driven. Upper ledge road. Yeah, they will take you up there. But we needed the work. I remember I had that brand new knife, and uh, I lost That's the sheath because I fell down. And, like I just barely missed stabbing the <laughs> crap out of my leg. The knife goes flying. I can never find the sheath again. I think I ended up making you take the knife home because I was afraid yeah. to have it out of the sheath. But it wasn't and, really easy getting up there either. No, it wasn't. We were like pulling on vines <laughs> and stepping through like Scal- scaling rocks. And- yeah. I'm impressed that we did it. Yeah. I'm proud of us. But I'm also uh, embarrassed for us because we're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we live, we learn. But, I mean, and we had never been really deep out there before. That was our first time, you know, getting out that far. How do we even find it anyway? I have no idea. I have, like, a natural sense of direction that I trust when I'm driving a car and I'm on roads. Like, but when I get out into the woods like that, I, it gets oh, it's a little, easy. It's it gets easy disorienting. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, Ron's group, they brought out GPS and thankfully, you know, you, everybody has these days a GPS unit in their cell phone. So if they ever got really stuck and really lost, somebody be able to find you provided that cell phone works out there. Yeah. Well, it's the first thing the pug wedgies are going to grab. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those, you know, in that area, it's so easy. You know, one minute you'll have four bars and you'll be like, I want to call all my friends oh, and yeah. them to come out here. And then the next second, nothing. And as, we're so overconnected in society now that I think nothing scares us more than when we're out in the woods in the dark and all of a sudden we look and we see that little red X yeah, next yeah. to the uh, antenna on the cell phone. Yeah. And when when you're out there, I mean, is there other precautions that you take? You know, besides, I guess besides alerting the guards and letting them know that you're going to be out there and, and, you know, if by morning somebody happens to stumble across your body, you know, <laughs> but it's, what, what else can you do if you're an investigator going out there knowing that you're going to lose that cell phone signal? You know, is, is there other ways that you can be sure that you can get around? I mean, are there marked trees that there's a path back to a road or there, you know, white? Well, we'll stick, we'll stick close by uh, a forest entry road. But, I mean, just in general, when you're out there, oh, I mean, when I'm, when are there I'm, markers that you can use new, to find yourself no, back? No, no, no. <laughs> you got to be very careful. Like I said, I, I try to keep the, the, the road close at hand, close in mind. I would, like, when well, Colex group went from the, uh, the reservation to the ledge through the woods under a full moon like that, Chris and I were like, we may never see him again. Yeah. We, had the, we had walkie-talkies to keep in touch with them, and it was like the typical, when they were encountering that entity, their radios were cutting out bad. So mm. it was kind of like, you know, aliens where the radio's cutting out and you don't know what's happening to the other team. You know, are they getting decimated by uh, some paranormal force or what? But Chris and I started to panic a little bit because it was like, we ran into you know, something and, oh, my God. And he was like, whoa, what's going on out there? <laughs> That's uh, when, when we – and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too early until things are formally approved, but uh, we've been working with the Wareham Historical Society uh, to be able to open up the Fearing Tavern for public investigation to raise money for the Historical Society. And one of the first things that, uh, you know, I, I realized when I'm trying to put this all together is, holy crap, we better have radios because we're going to be checking out three different areas uh, immediately around oh, yeah. that area. And if anything happens, you know, we need to, to be able to get the word out from one to the other. And Usually, though, when you think about it, and I'm sure you guys have used it many times to investigate, that's usually the first thing to go. Yeah, yeah. It's the first battery to get drained. It's yep. the first thing to cut out and get static. But still, you, you can't not have them. Right. I mean, look at when we use them in Lizzie Borden's house. <laughs> not only do we pick up the house phone 
over it. Not only do we pick up every truck driving by on the highway, which is only a stone's throw from there, we're getting, I think we get fall over police over them. We get the, the, the pizza baby delivery. Monitors. Yeah, I was just going to say baby monitors are infamous, yeah. It's just in that area. It's so active with so many different signals. Uh, but I wouldn't feel comfortable going around without it. No. Because no. We, perfect case in point, when we were there with uh, Jeanette, Yep. And we were investigating and we had stuff happening up on, you know, we're up on the second floor. And when we're on the second floor, stuff's happening in the basement. And when we're in the basement, stuff's happening on the upper floors. And it's just, it loves to play in that regard to make sure that it's not where you are. So you have to have that radio. Okay, where are you? Where are you? Yeah. But, you know, like you said, it's the first thing to go. Yeah. And flashlights. That's why I always keep a shaker flashlight as well as a standard flashlight. Yeah. That's the. I like, what, I like what Tom D'Agostino says about the shaker flashlights. He says, the ghost can keep draining it, but I can just shake it again. So one of us is going to give in eventually, you know? That's, that's the one thing that uh, I, I think is taken for granted the most is the flashlights because we always have our cell phones with us. Right. So we can always just hit the button and use yeah. that if we have to. Yeah. Uh, and it's but, good because it's low lighting. It doesn't mess up your night vision too bad, like a bright white flashlight. And, does. you know, in, at least in my limited experience investigating, it's the one battery that I've never had get drained is the cell phone. Uh, everything else, well, that's because yeah. you don't charge yours. <laughs> the, uh, no, but uh, you you have had it happen where Waverly Hills. Oh God, yeah. Well, that's you know that those those ghosts are hungry. <laughs> They're looking for anything. But it just seems like you know at least you know that the the cell phone is kind of the last you know outlet. You always have that. You know, mine has a, a voice recorder built in, so I know I can always use that, even though it's not. You know, the best quality, at least I have something. So if my batteries go dead on my recorder, I have something. Um, yeah, well, in a nighttime investigation, like in the Freetown State Forest, I am going to be bringing my uh, night scope uh, monocle with me. Uh, it doesn't help you find ghosts, but if you got something moving around the woods around you, you can find out, is it a raccoon? You know, is it a deer? Is it a coyote is like we encountered? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're at the ram tail and foster and Halloween that. night. And uh, <laughs> the alpha male of coyotes uh, shows up uh, on the path in front of Matt and I. And we didn't know if it was Beelzebub or Mother Nature. We didn't know what we looked. And this thing did not want to back off from us. We actually rushed it to make it leave. And it was like, I didn't think there. It stood its ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe we were going to be turning around and running. I would not mess with a coyote. Ha- Halloween night at, at one of the most haunted sites in Rhode Island, and this thing shows up. And, I mean, uh, the, these eyes were very large, very close, and, you know, this well, was not close, a small they were, animal. They were close to us, but far apart, yeah. meaning there was a large head that thing was attached <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, I live in kind of a haunted area of Wareham, Matt. You've yeah. probably done I investigations. Know, that town is crawling with us. <laughs> but where I live, uh, the, the only thing that I'm afraid of are the coyotes. Yeah. Because uh, I go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, there's times when you go out there and you can hear them shuffling around. Or... But the truth is a coyote is a pretty uh, skittish creature. That's why it threw Matt and I that this one didn't act skittish. This is the first time I've ever encountered one that stood its ground for a couple of seconds. Normally, like, you know, you open the door and you slam the screen door and, and they, they take yeah, off. Yeah, they're gone, yeah. But when you're out there and you're on their turf, it's probably a little bit of a different story anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, you're in our neighborhood now. Yeah, yeah. Pink boy. <laughs> it's like it's like that line of kindergarten cop. You're not so tough without your car, are you? Yeah. <laughs> so, but it just sounds like, you know, you're, you're covering all the bases in terms of safety, in oh, terms yeah. of what you're putting out. So there's no reason why people shouldn't sign up for this. Oh, or, no, no, no. And like you said, all the proceeds go to benefit music education. That's right. There's Encore program, which is to get kids instruments, give them the training, and then also to encourage uh, uh, national and even international competition. I remember when I was younger, 
Um, and I went through school, you know, you could sign up, you you went to instrument night, all the parents came and you could sign up to take a lesson and your parents paid something. I think it was like $40 a month or whatever for you to get an instrument. And, you know, it, it, you paid it out over the course of school year and then it was yours and you got lessons in school and you got all this and they don't have that anymore. No. You know, now if you have an instrument, it's because your parents went out and dropped the cash down at a music store to get it for you. You have to take private lessons from a, from a music shop and there's no more true music education. Beyond that, when you get somebody as great as, you know, Dartmouth High School, which has a phenomenal band that's played in like the Rose Bowl Parade, and I think they played the Rose Bowl Parade. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and somebody has to support that. And the money just isn't there for it, unfortunately, especially in Dartmouth where they have such great athletic programs. You know, a lot of that money, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's not an even balance between, you know, baseball, football, basketball, band. Mm. So to be able to help raise awareness and raise money for music education, I mean, it's, it's, it's one yeah. of the, it's kind of, it's, it's, I'm sorry to say, it's the first thing to go when cuts have to be made. Um, I went through it when I was in elementary school, uh, when I lived over on the Cape and they came through and they cut extracurricular activities. Like, well, we can't cut gym. You have to have at least, you know, so many hours of gym a week. So we have to give you that. Art. We can cut that. Music, we can cut that. And, you know, that was completely gone from the curriculum. And at least then there was nobody getting out there and putting together fundraisers like this to try and raise the money. So we love to talk about the paranormal. We love to go out and do these investigations. But when it can actually have more of a benefit for other people, I think it, it makes it even more worthwhile. And somebody who, you know, might be the biggest skeptic in the world still might go because they support the cause. Yeah, and then you can yeah. show them something to change their mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why we're trying to put together these nights with the Wareham Historical Society because they're just not getting people going through that building. And, you know, we spent time and we spent a number of hours there. And it, every time we turn the corner, we see something else. We're like, that's so cool. Yeah. But unfortunately, the general public just doesn't come up with it. You know, hey, if I go spend six bucks or three bucks, whatever it is, take a tour, I'm going to see something really neat. Yeah. Well, his footage actually wound up being one of the high points to when we uh, did the reveal from that. That was that was very strange, that light. Very <laughs> and, strange. To see all these people's faces when they see it, it's like these are people that go through that building every day, they, you know, leading tours, and, and for them to say, okay, I'm not sure I want to go back in there at night anymore. <laughs> oh, I didn't get any 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 negativity from that house at all. No, no, no but I mean, no. if you're if you're not familiar with the paranormal and it's you know your first experience with it, well, just the fact there's no electricity in the house and we had to wander around the dark using our little flashlights and cell phone lights. It was uh, it was like what yeah. one outlet I think. Yeah, and yeah. we're we're feeding everything, which is going to be great by the way when we go to do that filming, <laughs> because everybody's going to need to charge up everything. No, nah, I'm bringing I'm bringing a uh, a battery the size of a Volkswagen that'll last for about twelve hours. There you go. We've also got access to the uh, to the building behind it. Oh, neat. We've we've got keys. To to that you know the uh, the the metal yeah. building with the food inside yeah yeah, yeah we've we've got the key so which we is ever haunted need to charge up which is haunted yeah it's haunted by the hopes and dreams of the people in <laughs> <laughs> where the future goes to die Matt are we all set on breaks for this hour or yep. should we take another one okay well let me get your perspective as, as somebody that's been out in the Freetown State Forest Matt Costa and and been out there and and kind of experienced it. I know we haven't really been out there in the dark because we're we're yeah. wussies. But we are. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me! I, I'm thinking about tagging along on this thing. It sounds great. What another thought? We we brought bikes that time. We never used them. We did bring our bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and how long have we been talking about? Hey, this Friday. I don't have anything to do. You don't have anything to do. Let's go out to the state forest yeah. and and ride our bikes around. We never get to do it, but. You know, we went out there a, a few times yeah. and and we had our adventures. But w- what's your feelings of 
the state forest and and what's going on out there. It's definitely like a more unusual place than uh anywhere around here. I think um it has a different type of feel than any other state forest that I've been to. I mean, I've been to the Miles Standard State Forest plenty of times and Shawnee Kroll over yeah, on the Cape. I'm sure you've been through uh, that. And it just has like a different type of feel, you know. And this is coming from our skeptic, you know, for him yeah. to go in there and say that it feels weird. It seems darker at night too. Oh god. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. It's like yeah. pitch black. Yeah. And in that whole area, I mean, when we went to the Freetown Historical Society, we gave our presentation there. I don't even think had we even been out in the state forest by then? Um, I don't think we had been. I'm not sure. But we I mean, even that night we're out there talking about how creepy it feels and that's, you know, uh what about a half a mile out? Not even. Not even. All right, well, let's go to the phones here. We have somebody on the line. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hi, how are you, Tim? Oh, spooktacular. How are you? I'm good. I was lonely in the chat room. Nobody's in there with you? No, nobody wants to come and visit me, I guess. You know what the problem is? Is We we, uh, we couldn't get on to the Internet to announce that we were actually going to be on the air tonight. Oh. So uh, Twitter was down. <laughs> which oh, is, darn. You know, the one way that most people know, and, and uh, I think... I think you'll see that some people will probably pop on during the course of the show. They're just expecting us not to actually start on time. You know, oh. pe- people in uh, other areas that don't know the Red Sox schedule are like, well, there's probably a game. <laughs> I know they have to run the post game now, so uh, I'm going to wait a little while. Yeah, no Red Sox tonight. But you're you're somebody, Luann, who's been out in, in these areas and, and been around uh, the Freetown State Forest. What's your impression and your feeling of it? Oh, I love the Freetown State Forest. I actually have never been there in the nighttime either. <laughs> I've only been during the day, but um, well, that's a change, that. it definitely has a feeling. There is one other state forest, though, that gives me a feeling like that. Um, that is the Pashog State Forest down in Connecticut. I don't know if you remember, I did put pictures up once on your forum, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it. Definitely does have a feel to it. I have to agree about that. Uh, is there um, is it kind of a dark feeling to you? I mean, I know you. I know with your um, experiences, you you've kind of encountered a number of negative spirits, and and you can probably sense them better than we could. Do you sense a lot of them around that it's area? Hard to say. There's areas like if you go to Profile Rock, I feel like almost a reverence there. The atmosphere there, I, I almost feel like the, the Native American part takes over for me there. Um, there's areas, um, I've done a lot of hiking in the Freetown State Forest during the day. Um, there are areas that kind of can give you a little bit of a spooky feeling, like, you know, tingles up the back of your spine type feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine what the place is like at night. Um, but then again, there's other areas in the state forest where I feel great. It's nature and, you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's a clean place, you know, um, where it has a great feeling and you almost go back to that Native American feeling again. But there, there are definitely weird areas out there. Speaking of Native Americans, I don't know if you heard earlier in the show, we talked about our upcoming Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. And how this year we're going to focus on King Philip's War and some of the sites regarding the war and the spirits associated with it. And oh, that would be excellent. We're hoping that Whaling City Ghost are game for going out and doing some investigating for us that night. 
Well, you know we're up for it. I'll talk to Gabby. All right, June 27th. I just checked the Red Sox schedule. So June 27th will be the date of that program. So if if you'd like to join us, and if any other groups or investigators out there would like to join us, uh, you can email me, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll make sure that we uh, get everybody on board that wants to be involved. But, of course, we love the way that you approach uh, these spirits, Luann, and, and the way that you – uh, show respect and show reverence for them, and obviously it works because you uh, you get something out when you go out there. I actually, I just was saying recently that I really would love to go back out there to visit with those spirits again. I mean, I really feel something for them. And what you said earlier in the show, and it's so funny, when, when I actually got to come on to the show I put on the spooky TV, and right as I came in, you said my name, and I was like, <laughs> hey, what are you guys talking about me behind my back here? But um, We do that all the time. That's how we are here. <laughs> how dare you? But, uh, yeah, you know, what, the, the whole thing, they don't teach that in schools. You know, I was an adult, too, before I knew who King Philip was. It's like someone mentioned King Philip, and it's like, who's that? Somebody from England? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. We we don't learn this. There is absolutely no curriculum for and, that. And the poor guy, he's more remembered for the name that wasn't even his name. Right. That's right. You know, it was the name given to him by the yep. white man. So. Yep. You don't hear Medicom. No. No. Well, no, hopefully we can. Hunter. Hopefully we can hear him when we go out and we do the investigation. We can let him tell his own story. Oh, I would love to meet him. I'd love to know who it was that was standing there on top of Anwan Rock that night. I'd like to think it was Anwan. He was an older man, so we'll never know, I guess, unless he chooses to tell us, I guess. Well, uh, we'll definitely look forward to working with you that night and, of course, anytime. And, well, great. Uh, we'll, Thanks we'll for make inviting sure that, us. We're oh, excited. Absolutely. Anytime. And, and whenever we're doing anything like this, you know, you're one of the first groups we go to. You know that. Thanks. All right. Well, we're coming up on the news. Thank you for checking in, and we'll talk to you uh, more about plans coming up. Great. Have a good night, guys. You Take it easy, Luann. Good talking to you. Night. That is Luann, the lead investigator of Whaling City Ghosts, and they'll be involved with our big show June 27th. That'll be the date. We'll try and get some uh, extra time here from the station as well to make sure we f- go full bore with this. We'll have teams out there. We'll bring you the history of King Philip's War. We'll we'll give you an education. Maybe it's a good night. Uh, if you don't usually let the kids stay up late on Saturday nights, it might be a good night to let them tune in and find out a little bit more about our local history. But coming up on the news now, when we come back, we'll have the Week in Weird. Also, we got the Haunted Headlines, Matt? Um, we're going to try to work that out. All right, we'll figure something out. <laughs> and, of course, we'll take more of your calls as well. 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Spooky South Coast. That's a good show, man. You know what? I got a theory about your show. You guys got no idea what's going on. Well, excuse me for having enormous flaws that I don't work on. Spooky South Coast is back. The key of the whole thing is to think as a child. And for me, that comes very easy. I can spare your fears. I'm not afraid. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.
welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal Research hanging out with us as well. We've got Spooky, spooky TV up and running. Uh, you can see what's going on here in the Spooky Studio by going to SpookySouthCoast.com. That's a lot of Spookies for one sentence. <laughs> but uh, if you go there, you'll see the link for Spooky South Coast TV, and you can check it out there. You can see what's going on. It's lagging a little bit behind because of the Internet tonight. So I know that if I wave in about 10 seconds, you'll actually see it uh, on the screen. Uh, we had somebody call in during the break, and they wanted to let us know that um, this person said that they went to school in the late 80s uh, in Dartmouth, and they attended the DeMello School. And as a fourth grader, she learned about King Philip's War as part of the curriculum there. Uh, and as she was saying, you know, she's not sure if one teacher just had it as a personal passion that they wanted to make sure they included it, or if it was something that was town-wide or school-wide. Or, but at least in her class, they were informed about King Philip, about the war, and especially how it relates to the history of Dartmouth, which I'm sure Aaron Cadge probably got some exposure to that as well. And that's kind of what geared him toward making these films. We have another call on the line here. Let's uh, take this call. And see who is there. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Hi, Tim. How are you? Oh, spooktacular. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I listen every week and uh, I'm actually watching on the web here today. But I have a big interest in the King Phillips. Um, I do have a bunch of the booklets. Um, there's there's a series by Leo Bonafanti. It's um, biograph, biographs and legends of New England Indians, and he's got a whole book dedicated to King uh, Philip about you know, the onset of the uh, mm-hmm. the war and everything like that. They're really good good little reads. I was wondering if you, you guessed it, heard of those. No, I no, there's no one on me. I'll have to look those up, see if we can get some copies of them. And um, I Actually, I got your email uh, during the break, and you had uh, actually mentioned the book uh, about King Philip's War by Michael Tagayas and, and his co-author. And uh, as we said earlier on the show, I'm actually trying to pinpoint, you know, when I can record an interview with, with Michael Tagayas to air on the air, uh, to air on the show, but we'll probably have it aired during that Bridgewater Triangle episode. Excellent. And we'll find out more, because he actually goes out and does presentations uh, about King Philip's War to local historical societies and libraries, and uh, the reason I found out about his book is because he was doing something in Westport, and Matt Cost and I were reading the paper, and we just happened to see it uh, in the calendar listings, and so I got in touch with him, and hopefully not only can we have him on the show, but hopefully we can get him to come down here and do some more of these presentations I know he has another book about uh, something that happened on Cape Cod, off the coast of Cape Cod, a Coast Guard incident, um, but hopefully we can still get him to do a few King Phillips uh, well, this, presentations. This, this book talks a little bit, of, it's a booklet actually, it talks about that uh, he, King Philip had a brother, actually Alexander, who was older than Philip, and he took over when Massasoit died, so uh, Alexander was was the one in charge, but he, he got sick on a trip, um, and... Philip had thought he was poisoned, mm-hmm. so that stu- stuck with him. And then the then all the you know hostility started. Um, but it's a very 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 interesting. And um, when they were finally got him in the uh, the great you know in the swamp, uh, he was it says that he was killed by a Pocasset Indian had killed him mm-hmm. for so being they, angry that uh, Philip killed um, a, a good friend of his, a warrior uh, mate of his, at uh, one of. Philip's lieutenants, who suggested that maybe they should surrender. And the story is that Philip was like, how dare you? So in front of all these braves to quelch the idea of giving in, he killed this guy right in front of everybody to say, we don't surrender. And supposedly that uh, that man held a strong grudge. He, he lost all loyalty for Philip. And he was the one who betrayed him at the um, what's called Philip's uh, throne 
in Rhode Island. Where's that? In uh, I want to say Bristol. Yeah. And uh, matter of fact, I think Brown University owns the property. But he even shot Philip himself, and then the British uh, draw and, and quartered him and, and took his took his head. I have been told. I will not elaborate on who told me this, but the Wampanoags know where his uh, drawn and quartered um, uh, body is. They really? got a hold of it. They buried it. Yeah. They did not. The story is they didn't get his head. But um, you know, a lot of people say, "Gee, you know, the, the, the English was so bloodthirsty. How could they do that?" A lot of people forget the English had just finished fighting their own civil war before they came over. So you had a lot of guys who were militia groups in England committing some of the most horrendous crimes against mankind. And when that Civil War ended, it ended with Charles I being drawn and quartered, having his head removed and stuck in a cage and hung in certain key points throughout London. And I, I think there's a little bit of more that they're talking about in the book, that just after the um, after they, Philip was killed, they went and they gathered up all the what they called the praying Indians out of Natick. They marched them over to Deer Island in Boston, and they put them out there to starve. So it's just just one thing after another that was just horrible. How, how did you get interested in the subject? Was it something you learned about, you know, when you were in school? No, I just I just didn't know who he was, and uh, I you know I, I knew that there was a high school. I, you know, I'm in Rosendale, but I knew there was a high school called Philip, and it was called King Philip, and I just had no idea what who King Philip was, and how, how could he be an Indian? And then I, I found these booklets, which were awesome, and then I picked up some other books and just continued reading on, on about that, you know. But these booklets talk, talk about the attacks in Medfield and, uh, you know, how they went through, and they actually went out to western Massachusetts to try to get the uh, Mohegans out there to, um, you know, out towards Deerfield, and, but, but things just fell apart. You know, they were unable to... Uh, get enough people together, or enough Indians to really mount an attack on them. And, and these books are by Leo Bonfanti, you said? Yeah. Um, it's Pride Publishing, um, and the booklets, and, and this, I, I've bought them up in Salem when I was up there. Pride Publishing, uh, public, pub, publications, it's uh, Suite 12, 203 Middlesex Turnpike, Burlington. This was put out in 1970. Um, I think there's old salt box publications too. I don't know if they're involved with this, but they're just great um, booklets on on New England Indians. There's about six or seven of them. And you know, we hear if you watch the History Channel, you watch you know some of these Discovery Channel programs or Smithsonian Channel programs, you, you get a lot of Geronimo. You get a lot of you know Sitting Bull. You get these other. Native Americans in other areas where, you know, we're talking about late 1700s, 1800s, where we had more, you know, people documenting what the Native Americans did. You don't hear enough about the New England Native Americans because no. at the time they were treated so poorly that they just didn't even bother to learn about them. They didn't bother to learn about who they were as a people. And, and basically all they did is they figured out how to get along with them and they figured out how to use them. Right. And, and what I what I find real interesting is is – the history that when the when the uh, frontier was Deerfield, Mass, and all, and all that went on beforehand, and um, you know that's that's what's interesting to me. I know, like like you said, you see all the stuff on TV about the Western Indians, but these Indians in New England and up in uh, Nova Scotia, they were the first ones to come in contact with with the uh, French and the in the in the British way back. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they kind of were, you know, the first people to interact with those from the New World and. 
I mean, maybe it didn't really go so smoothly. No. But, but I mean, it's still, it's a very important part of history, and we're, I think we're so embarrassed by it around here that that's why we sweep it under the rug and we don't talk about it. There's, there's, a, there's also, there's a, there's a, there was a, um, a, a fellow that came over around the time of the Pilgrims, and his name was Thomas Morton. He set up in uh, what is now Marymount in Quincy. He was called the Pagan Pilgrim. Because he was a he was a throwback to um, Shakespearean type. Because um, he, he was totally different. He 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 kept his pagan ways, but he came over here, and they did not like him because he was he he was able to to barter more with the Indians and the Puritans were just you know just so strict, and he was totally different. But they called him the pagan pilgrim, and um, he was here, and they they, they rounded it, they got they arrested him. And um, they, they sent him back to England, and he wrote a book called uh, The New Canaan. So he lambasted what was going on in the colonies um, in Plymouth itself, and then up, uh, they called it Dorchester Bay uh, Company. And he went back over there, and he kind of talked bad about them, and, but he made his way back over to um, the, col- the colony here in New England, and they ended up arresting him again, and they put him on a small island out off New Hampshire where he got real sick and he ended up dying. But he is a very interesting character, Thomas uh, Morton. And no one knows about him either. No, and and this is what we're talking about. I mean, this is, I think, part of what our job is. I mean, sure, we talk about the paranormal. We talk about, you know, ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, all that kind of stuff. But it's also part of our job to use this time that we're given to educate people, whether we educate them about the paranormal, whether we educate them about the history that is... Loosely and in some cases strongly associated with that paranormal activity. You guys do a great job. I really enjoy the uh, show. Thank you very much. And if I can make a recommendation, uh, if you haven't already checked it out, uh, our friend Craig Anderson has his website, ourhistoryproject.com, and it's also, you can find the links to it uh, through the Blogspot Spooky South Coast site. Um, but he did a, a four-part series with Aaron Cadju about King Philip's War uh, and more of the history about it. So I, I highly recommend that, and definitely check that out. If you've got a lot of time on your hands, because they talked for a long time about the subject, and it's a lot of great information. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for calling and for listening to the program. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. And uh, if you would like to call in and share your thoughts, let us know. Did you learn about King Philip in school? How did you first find out about Metacom and what happened uh, between him and the English settlers? Give us a call, 508-996-0500, You can also email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, or you can check out the chat room at justin.tv slash spookysouthcoast. And all week long, if you want to get on board and get our Twitter updates, twitter.com slash spookysc. Of course, we crashed Twitter earlier today because I tried to log in and we had so many people following us that it crashed the whole Twitter system. Is that, is that what happened, Matt Costa, you think? Oh, yeah. I think sure. So. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. All right. It seems almost, uh, it seems almost like, you know, inappropriate to go from what we've just been discussing now to the week and weird, but we got to get it into the program tonight. So, Let's get a little bit weird. Well, I got a great show for you today, which is wonderful. Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. The Week in Weird. 
All right. Well, our first story, we're talking baseball, which uh, seems, you know, wildly appropriate since tonight's the only night we didn't have to wait around for a baseball game to get over. But uh, this comes from WISN.com in Milwaukee. Major League Baseball players claim a downtown Milwaukee landmark may be haunted. Professional baseball players have lots of eerie tales about the Fister Hotel. That's P-F-I-S-T-E-R, Fister Hotel. Milwaukee TV station WISN reported. Most professional baseball and basketball teams stay at the Fister when they're in town. Some members of the Milwaukee Brewers heard the ghost stories when they visited Milwaukee while playing for other teams. There was a few, uh, this according to Brewers closer Trevor Hoffman, he said, There have been a few people that have said there was a particular floor, I don't know which one, but there might have been some chains rattling or something at night. Brewers center fielder Mike Cameron said, The halls seem like they're really creepy. You know, just really cringy a lot. A St. Louis player, uh, Brendan Ryan, said, Something seemed paranormal in his room. Uh, it was more like a moving light that kind of passed through the room. It was very strange. The room got a bit chillier. Ryan said, strange things, strange things. Guests claim they've seen the ghost of hotel founder Charles Fister looking over the lobby from the grand staircase. The balcony over the Imperial Ballroom is another place people say they've seen something strange. Hotel representatives said any building more than 100 years old is going to have some, quote, squeaks and creaks. Fister General Manager Joe Kurth said there are so few hotels in the United States that have that ground down status. The Fister certainly is one of them. There definitely is a heritage and a history here that you just don't find in other hotels across the country. Cardinals manager Tony La Russa said it's a first-class hotel. You get first-class care, and if there's a ghost or two, well, they're good friends. The Fister recently completed a multi-million dollar restoration of all guest rooms, down to the wallpaper and carpets. The general manager said that, quote, there have been no sign of any spirits, which, you know, if it's haunted and they've been doing renovations, of course there's been signs of spirits. What do you think drags them out there? Why do you think they're so active? But... I didn't get a chance to check the book Haunted Baseball by Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, but I'm sure the Fister Hotel is mentioned in there. And if not, it'll definitely be in the future upcoming volume of Haunted Baseball. So, uh... I was expecting a Mealy Walk-A joke. I, I was too worried about getting through the part about it being called the Fister Hotel. I thought that was going to devolve quickly, so... Make I'm, sure when you Google it, you put the P on there. Yeah, okay. but, but definitely... <laughs> you don't want to be looking up Fister Hotel... The massive smell of natural gas. Yeah, I noticed that. I'm, I was starting to wonder if maybe we should be concerned. If you're if you're smelling it, that's a concern. Yeah. Hmm. If you see us pass out at home on the uh, the webcam, <laughs> <laughs> call or the authorities. Bright flash. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Matt Casa, why don't you uh, read your story and I'll go uh, well, investigate. Well, everybody else evacuates. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. You stay here, Matt. All right. A kid from Harlem reaches towards extraterrestrials. And science reaches for another recruit. Kamal Hamilton is 11 and a sixth grader from Harlem, who has be, who has been flown out to help venerable astrobiology institute communicate with aliens. His idea was to send sounds of nature into space, including thunder, lightning, the ocean, and rain. Kamal also made other recordings he thought would offer little glimpses of our war of our world. A man grilling a chicken on the street, a crow's car being drowned out by an airplane, and so on. Kamau was one of the six winners of the Kids Science Challenge, a, na- a new national, a new nationwide competition founded by the National Science Foundation, in which third through sixth graders submit experiments and problems for working scientists and engineers to solve. Kamau posed a question: Why can we communicate with extraterrestrials? 
how can we communicate with extraterrestrials if we don't know if they have the same language similar to ours? And if we don't know their communicate, why, why don't we know their communication system? As a winner, he got to spend several days with the actual SETI scientists. Kamal gave a presentation, played his recordings he'd, he'd made, and generally caught a first-hand glimpse of what a career in science looks like. If you can call SETI science. I'm not going to say a thing. <laughs> I knew you weren't. His visit coincided with a new effort by SETI to gather messages from general population, population for a potential transmission to whoever might be listening out there. Doug coach, director of the Interstellar Message uh, Composition, said the project was a particularly good fit for someone like Kamau. So, what do you think about that? Nature sounds... No different than the Voyager probe they, they recordings can, that they sent out. They're gonna put them to sleep. It always <laughs> it always puts me to sleep. <laughs> Crickets, sound of the ocean. Well, make them go pee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody if getting woozy? Maybe then they'll they'll crash. It definitely is still a strong smell in here. I went outside, and you know the usual <laughs> the usual parking lot smell we get <laughs> when we leave uh, the spooky studio was uh, it wasn't really bad out there at all. So. But this was definitely a, a natural gas, like a ma- like. like I mean, a I had main. I had franks and beans for dinner, but it definitely wasn't me. Yeah, this was high octane. All right, well, Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? While we still have time. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from uh, myfoxdetroit.com. Detroit, as the uh, search continues in Monroe County for Navia. Buchanan, I guess that's the sure. name. Yeah, okay. Uh, there are hearts aching for another little girl. Uh, she has been missing since October, and police have little to go on. Recently, a psychic claimed to know where they would find the Tanzanian uh, Hussein. Okay. Investigators combed an area near uh, I-94 and Harper on the west side of Detroit with a cadaver dog looking for the little girl's remains. This is where a psychic from California told police they would find the child. Detroit Police Commander Paul Wells said that they only found a dead pit bull after coming across, combing across acres of land. The dog really worked hard for us and had no luck, he said. Unless you count the dead dog. Yeah. <laughs> police have few leads in the case. Tanganyia was last seen in October with Jamarul Hassan, her mother's boyfriend. Uh, he said the child disappeared from a marathon gas station where he went inside and left her alone in the car. Hussein uh, was in jail on unrelated charges. Uh, Tan- Tanganyia had not been seen since. Little to go on, investigators followed up on a tip from Major Edward Dames, who uses a paranormal technique called remote viewing. His team came to Detroit, and he told police where they would find her, but still no luck. We're still hopeful, and obviously, if anybody has any information regarding her disappearance, please come forward, Well said. So does that surprise you that uh, Major Ed Dames gave a tip and it didn't pan out? No, not at all. (laughs) Remote viewing is not as simple as... People think it is. Well, I mean, but Ed Dames has a track record, you know, especially in recent years of coming up with these, you know, bold statements and proclamations and 
coming up with zilch. Yeah. So, but that shouldn't turn people off to the idea of remote viewing, I don't think. I look at it this way. It's just another tool in the tool shed that can potentially be used by law enforcement. Whether it's always 100% successful, no. But at least it's an effort that you're making. The, the way I see it, as long as they're just aiding an investigation and giving them an idea of where to go, and it's not like testimony against somebody in a courtroom, then I'm fine with it. Right. If it leads to a potential clue that the police can tangibly pick up and utilize, great. Otherwise, and, you know, it's just one more place to look. As we found out, don't be surprised what the police will be willing to uh, look at when they need a break in a case Speaking like this. Speaking of which, I've not heard back anything no, from you. I have not either. And that's with repeated uh, attempts to contact them. But. Yeah, so it's like they took the case over, let them handle it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to stand in the way of any police investigations. All right, Andrew, what do okay, you have? Okay, I us? have from the Highland News in the U.K., Celebrity stage stars of the classic TV sitcom LOLO are at the center of a Nessie mystery, and a leading Loch Ness expert is baffled by one of the most unusual sonar readings recorded on the Loch Ness while the cast was on a pleasure cruise. Sonar pictures taken on the voyage revealed five unexplained images which have led to monster speculation. The mysterious images, which appear to be 200 feet apart, have now been sent for scientific analysis. Recorded sightings of the Loch Ness Monster go back nearly 1,500 years, dating to 565 A.D., although many photographs of the legendary Nessie taken in the past century have proved to be either hoaxes or simple optical illusions. Uh, the riddle began on Thursday morning when the cast of the stage adaptation of Allo Allo were on board the Jacobite Queen, taking the opportunity to visit the world-famous Loch whilst uh, they were in the Highland capital for a week-long run at Eden Court Theatre. The sonar reading, which illustrates five individual characters, was recorded at precisely 11.20 a.m. between Doors Village and Urquhart Castle. According to Jacobite Queen Captain John Askew, it was the first time in his 15 years working on the lock that he had successfully picked up images of this kind on any of the Jacobite fleet sonar screens. The Loch Ness Project's Adrian Shine, an expert in sonar who has been studying the loch since 1973, could not explain the sighting. He said that uh, this has got me puzzled and has every appearance of a genuine sonar contact. A single object often appears again uh, as an echo. I would like to see uh, the boat go back to this spot and see if the same thing could be produced again. This certainly adds to the Loch Ness mystery and will be the subject of further investigation. Uh, he went on to further say, I don't understand five separate images on a sonar reading. It could possibly be a string of uh, targets anchored to the bed of the lock, but that is again not likely, as the targets are 200 feet apart exactly, which is why I would like to see uh, the boat go back to that spot. There will be an explanation for this, but at the moment, I just don't have one. So there you go. Some, some Another British TV show and a paranormal tie-in. We talked a few weeks ago about Coronation Street and the ghost that was haunting the set of that show, and now we have, you know, a Loch Ness possible sighting by LOLO. Now, this is interesting. I know of a uh, another set of people that went and did something, and they found what was basically several wheelbarrows chained together in a line, because in it was roughly around 600 feet of water. This is where the British Navy were testing. Uh, it was a testing ground and training ground for them to 
do uh, sonar location of things underwater. Now, what I'm wondering is, is this another one of their um, old, training, targets. old mm-hmm. training targets? Yes. Right. Right. Could be. Well, I can tell you that uh, one of the topics that people want us to talk about more here on Spooky South Coast is the Loch Ness Monster, and I'm sure we'll definitely do that because here on Spooky South Coast, we aim to please you, sir. That uh, is the week. That is the week and weird. Uh, uh, shut the you, camera off while we toss him a beating for that one. If you, <laughs> if you have a story you'd like to submit to the week and weird, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the forum tab, go into the week and weird thread, put the story in there or a link to it, and if we use it on the air, you'll get a Spooky South Coast bumper sticker while supplies last. All right, we'll be right back with more. we got the haunted headlines coming up, and then we'll finish off the show with more discussion with Andrew Lake and all things paranormal here on Spooky South Coast. Listening to the Haunted Headlines, your source for the stories making waves in the paranormal news. Sponsored by GhostVillage.com at www.ghostvillage.com backslash news. Good evening, you're listening to the Haunted Headlines, Ghost Village's weekly journey on the paranormal newswire to bring you the biggest stories affecting the ghost community. Ghosts are getting in the way by being in the road again. In a story from the LA Times reporting from Chivu, Zimbabwe, people are fearing spirits in the road who seem to be taking the lives of some travelers and putting others in the line of fire there. They believe the ancestors on a stretch of road are angry, maybe in remembrance of Cecil Rhodes, who founded the Diamond Company De Beers and sold Zimbabwe. Rhodes helped to establish a camp near what is now the highway, and local people strongly believe that many were thrown to a burning pit by the Diamond Companies. The superstitious among the locals also feel that the younger generation has neglected the rituals that once kept them safe. More than three dozen people have died on this road in recent days, including Susan Zinzagri, the wife of Prime Minister Morgan Zinzagri, and another accident there in mid-April killed almost 29 people. The debate rages whether the accidents and the deaths are due to bad spirits in the road or treacherous passage caused by a lack of funds needed to fix the road. Many people in Zimbabwe feel the two are connected. Newport, Rhode Island is known for its mansions on the ocean and historic tales of ghosts, and often the two go hand in hand. One of the more visible houses in the town is now for sale. Belcourt Castle, Bellevue Ave's oldest mansion, has been put up for sale for $7.2 million by the sole surviving member of the family, Harley Tinney, who has owned it for more than half a century. The property was listed on May 1st and is another paranormal real estate to come up for sale since the beginning of the year. This listing might be one of the harder and most telling so far. Newport has long been known as the anchor of affluence in New England, and the Belcourt has one of the most stable properties throughout the last half of the century. In addition to seeking a peek into the old life in Newport and the antiques which have come to characterize the castle, visitors might spot any of the shadows or ghostly figures people have reported there over the years, including the castle's famous monk. In keeping with the paranormal real estate theme, another property in Albuquerque, New Mexico, has gone through a radical transformation in recent days, and the financial backers of the change are hoping a different face will help the old building lose its ghosts. In the coming days, Memorial Hospital, which recently celebrated its 85th year, will become a hotel. According to a story from KOAT, the ABC affiliate out of Albuquerque, 
The empty, falling-down building, which became a mental health facility in the 1980s, was the site of all the gloom and doom traditionally associated with asylums, and helped to spark rumors and tales of paranormal energy still present there. According to authorities, Klinger Construction will be handling the renovations on the 2.3-acre property, and people on the cruise are reporting the same ghostly happenings that people spoke of for years before it closed and later became a target for ghost hunters and thrill-seekers. Quote, I'm sure it's haunted, Ray Smith, what Klinger says. Don't go on the second floor of the West Wing by yourself. The Hotel Park Central, the hotel which is being built, is expected to open up in about a year. Those are the haunted headlines for this week. Make sure to stop by Ghost Village's news section and read about these stories and more at www.ghostvillage.com backslash news. Until next week, I'm Chris Balzano, and that's what's haunting me. I'd like to see the original redone again. Why? What's that? From Phantasm. Oh yeah. Why, yeah. why haven't I seen that? What's wrong with me? Oh, the old Phantasm. Yeah. That's a classical hey, boy. You know, for, like, for like eight Angus years Street. now, Phantasm Two has been on Fearnet, and I refuse to watch it because I haven't seen Phantasm no. One. No, you gotta see Phantasm One. So, all right, well, classic. Sure, somebody's got it on DVD. Oh yeah, low budget classic. <laughs> you know, I have Netflix. A DVD comes with a uh, free poster that you can put over your bed. Really? Of the of the tall man. Nice. Angus Scrim. Did you do it? <laughs> Did I put it over my bed? Yeah. No, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal Research. We're all here kicking around topics about the paranormal. Now, Matt Moniz, this is something that I wanted to bring to your attention. A few weeks ago, we talked to the uh, to Sandman of Society of the Dead about their planned investigation of the Titanic, and we talked about even though they're going to be you know on the on the surface of the water and trying to catch EVPs and things of that nature, right? We did talk about the idea of diving and trying to catch paranormal activity. Well, this story comes from SCNow.com down South Carolina. Those who die at sea might never leave the water, body or soul, and if they're still there, perhaps haunting the reefs and shipwrecks where they perished. Paranormal Divers aims to find them. The Cape Coral-based company is preparing for a summer of ghost hunting in Bay Area waters with investigations of the Gunsmoke, a shrimp trawler that mysteriously sank with a cargo of marijuana 14 miles west of (laughs) Egmont Key in 1977. The Blackthorn, a Coast Guard buoy tender that collided with a freighter in 1980, killing 23 seamen. And the waters beneath the old Sunshine Skyway, where 35 people died after a freighter rammed the bridge in 1980. We pick a wreck that is some potentially haunted history, and then we check it out, says Lee Ehrlich, president of Ghost Pros Paranormal Incorporated. And the company films its search and sells the videos which weave the story of the site, fact, and lore, and the paranormal diver's experience. So, uh, I mean, I have some more information about that. The dive team sets up sonar, dro- sonar drones to record underwater sounds. The recordings are analyzed to determine what sounds you're not supposed to hear, which are possibly sounds of the paranormal. Um... Just looking real quick about what else they use. They will also watch for the telltale glow of bioluminescence light forms and listen for unusual sounds. So, uh, and they do not, of course, offer proof of the paranormal. They just want to give you something to think about. So, you know, we had talked about the idea of diving to prove, you know, whether or not these wrecks are haunted. What do you think about this? What do you think about what they're doing and, and 
what they're trying to do with uh, paranormal divers. Being a diver myself, I, I, I wouldn't mind going down to check it out. The idea of catching EVPs via underwater is still a little bit of a hard thing for me to to take as being possible. Number one, because underwater sound travels much better than air, and mm-hmm. you can get all kinds of things that uh, you know generate noise underwater, both biologically as well as artificially, like a boat you know miles away can be generating a sound that you may pick up as somebody humming. You, I, I find it a little difficult. Number two, voices, uh, at least for the living, are caused by air passing over larynx or the, in through the vocal cords, and you need air to do that. Underwater, even though we're talking in spirit form here, I guess mm-hmm. that is what the argument is that doesn't make a difference. It's just the energy that's being recorded. But I, I. I find it hard because there's far too much interference in recordings underwater. But how, to, to, how do you explain that Twilight, epi- uh, Twilight Zone episode with the sub with the tapping? Yeah. <laughs> tapping is another story. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. Have you done <clears throat> rock diving before? Have you actually yes. gone down to shipwrecks? Yes. And have you had any kind of paranormal experience in relation to that? Uh, the creepiest feeling was the YU-22, which is a German U-boat off the coast of... Uh, here in Massachusetts, right off of Provincetown. It's in about 120 feet of water. And it's sitting almost upright on the uh, ocean floor. And when you're coming down out of the darkness, and I went with a, a group, and it's, a, it's also a war memorial, which means you can't enter it. Um, but they they turned on the you know the lights that illuminated over it as we went down, and it's the eeriest thing just to see this submarine sitting on the floor. Of the, of the ocean and knowing that there's at least 50, 60 guys that, you know, perished inside this thing. And you get the creeps at least, you know, being in a cold, dark, you know, scary place because, you know, off, once you get off the coast and where, where this is and, you know, 120 feet actually is pretty deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not, you're not going to be able to hold your breath and head to the surface. I'm no, sorry. No, it's a little hard to it's a little hard to run away from those ghosts if you should yeah. run into them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's a very eerie feeling. And when when you're doing these dives and you're you're going down there, a lot of people will tell you, you know, we and we we heard it when we talked about the Titanic show. We've heard from people that say, hey, you know, this is a grave site. Basically, you're not supposed to be trampling all over a grave site the idea of paranormal research, but don't people do that on the surface all the time when they go to cemeteries and try to catch EVPs and anomalous lights and footage there? I mean, how is that any different? For some reason, though, when it's something that happens at sea, it seems to have more impact to people as it being a grave, and and, and they don't want you going down there and investigating it in that regard. I, I agree. I mean, there are still uh, places in the South Pacific on some of these islands where they still have bodies inside of these burnt tanks from World War II when they were doing the island fighting. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but isn't there also some places in Europe where they oh, were doing... Yeah. Well, you had the um, the uh, the amphibious uh, tanks um, uh, that was supposed to go into uh, Omaha Beach, and they found out later that the currents were so bad that these tanks were swamped, and they dropped like a stone with their crews in them on the way to Omaha Beach. Uh, they're, they're still out there. So, I mean, I know, Moni, you'd want to go there to find that uh, 
that cargo of marijuana that's supposed to be It's probably ruined now, though. Probably nothing you can do with it. Uh, I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these, these boats that they're, you know, these are recent wrecks that they're going down there to check out. I mean, 1977, 1980, another one in 1980. So, uh, you're going down there and you're trying to capture, you know, spirit activity from spirits that are relatives of people that are still alive, that are still, you know, there and they might have a problem with you going down there and doing this, but apparently this company is making some kind of profit because uh, they're they're turning this stuff over and in, into video format and selling it. Um, they're also teaming with Tampa-based Sea Viewer Underwater Video Systems, whose clients have included the Discovery Channel, uh, the National Weather Service, the Army Engineers, and ESPN. Their high-definition studio cameras were also used to film scenes in Russell Crowe's movie Master and Commander. So, I mean, they're bringing some heavy-duty filmmaking equipment down there to capture this stuff and then turning it around for DVDs. I mean, are we looking at uh, are we looking at the next phase of paranormal investigation? You know, we, we've exhausted all the possible new haunts we can exhaust up here. Or these people could just be uh, looking for a project to pay for these very expensive cameras, and they That's... figured there might be a market out there to... To sell these DVDs. If you want to talk about uh, underwater uh, uh, exploration in a haunted uh, area, Chris Belzano and I uh, got a um, uh, email from a guy in the Cushnet area who's actually building a robotic uh, submersible, and he, right. wa- he wants to go into the the quarry uh, uh, you know, pond, the pool at the bottom of uh, the Asana Ledge. That would be really. And, I, and as Chris said in his book, uh, Dark Woods, uh, he'd been told that state police and even FBI divers say that it's so dark and so cold and disorienting that they can only go so deep into there. And supposedly there are cars with bodies in them at the bottom of that, uh, you know, body of water. How, so I mean, how deep are we talking with that one? It's supposed to be very, very deep. Like, they, they're they not quite sure. But it's it's so deep that when they went to follow up on leads that supposedly murder victims were put in there, they had to give up the ghost, so to speak, and mm-hmm. rise to the surface. They could not get all the way to the bottom to find if there, in fact, are cars down there. Bear in mind, it was a quarry at one point, so yeah. that we know quarries go down hundreds and hundreds well, of Look at all the buildings up. that quarry built. I mean, the, yeah. the mansions in Newport and yeah. the Asane Asylums and the Bridgewater Triangle. <laughs> a lot of stone came out of there. Hmm. Weird Did stone. <laughs> Carrying the ghost from uh, out of the Freetown State yeah. Forest to somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Matt, I notice uh, you're, you're cruising the Internet there looking for Jeff Belanger. Is that, do you miss him? I, I just like that shirt that he's wearing. <laughs> yeah, that flamingo shirt? <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, he, he's going to have a new episode of 30-odd minutes coming out this week. So you want to make sure you check that out at 30oddminutes.com, 30oddminutes.com, or at ghostvillage.com as well. And uh, he was teasing us. He had he had a personal uh, personal event to attend to tonight, but uh, he said he was going to call up and harass us. But I guess he got too busy, you know, actually being involved. Uh, but we'll have him on the show Real soon, uh, he's going to be coming back for his regular stint real soon, his monthly co-hosting stint, and uh, we'll, we'll be seeing him a lot sooner because we're going to see him. That's later. right. Uh, but definitely uh, stay tuned for, for more episodes of 30-odd minutes. It's fun, it's interesting, it's informative, and it's a new approach to these paranormal television shows that are out there. And Plus, you know, you know when Jeff's on it, something's bound to happen that's uh, not uh, supposed to. I'm pleased to say I'm helping him with that project. Excellent yeah, work. Yes. As am I. Yes, as Matt has been just joined the team recently. There you go. So uh, some first-hand information about what's going on. And, and Andrew, working in, in 
film and working in television production and you know what Jeff's trying to do and bringing these people on I mean we've seen other shows that will do a, a telephone connection like we do but try to do it with a video presentation he's using the Skype system yeah and and you're actually able to look in and see what's going on I'm sure there's a lot of technical challenges to that oh yeah the first episode uh, did have its uh its uh kinks to work out but i thought on the whole it was it was very good it, and to be able to utilize that stuff not only for the talk show format but in the future you know as as the internet becomes easier and easier to access wherever we are we're going to start seeing that used in investigation i know uh live sci-fi tv.com uh carries a lot of live investigation video uh i know that with one 50 program um for my laptop and my cell phone i could have uh, internet connection wherever I go through my cell phone, which would allow us to broadcast on Justin TV no matter where we are. So, I mean, we're going to start seeing more and more of this technology incorporated in what we're doing. So the fact that, you know, we can jump on it here early on and, and have somebody using it, even in the talk show format, at least it shows that the paranormal community is embracing this technology and it's going to go somewhere in the future. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, of course, it's it's pretty darn cheap to to use something like Skype, too. I mean, I'm telling, I, I had a meeting with uh, some people um, at one of my other jobs trying to tell them about how they can utilize all this technology for what they do. And they're like, really? Well, you know, how hard is that? How much is that? How do you do that? I was like, I don't know. I just go to this website, type it in, and it happens. Yeah. And it's free. Well, with the Skype system, I mean, the uh, the uh, the first test to see if it would work, Jeff uh, interviewed his dad, like, in Connecticut. It was that easy. I mean, his dad was able to just... Walk it up, you know, hey, I'm here, how's it going? Yeah. You know, that's and, it. And when we were here, when we had uh, Dr. Turry on the show a few weeks ago, you know, we had Dr. Turry on Skype, and we were able to see him, and through Spooky TV, he was able to see us. And, you know, it's the, the, the technology is out there and we will be the first to try to embrace it. <laughs> as long as we can figure it out and get it to work in the Spooky Studio, you know, we'll utilize it. So, all right, well, that about wraps it up for this week's show. We'd like to thank Andy for coming in hey, and joining it was great. us. Great being here. And you're always welcome back again. Thank just you. tap on the window. And uh, we'll be here next week after the Red Sox. Our guest will be Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. Now, you remember a few months ago, I think it was in November, actually, right after, right before the election, uh, we talked to him about uh, the million facts on Washington and about the attempts to try to get the White House to offer disclosure about what they know about the UFO situation. And uh, now they're moving into phase two of that million facts. And uh, Steve will join us to talk with us about what that entails, how you can get involved, and what we can do to find out. Maybe we can get President Obama to release some information. I don't know. All I'm saying is I saw commercials all this week for the guy is opening up the doors of the White House to NBC News and giving them a complete inside look at the day-to-day operations of the Obama White House. If he can do that, then surely he can let some documents out about the UFO situation, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll find out next week. (laughs) So uh, until then, we want you all to remember now, twitter.com slash spookysc. That's where you get the updates. SpookySouthCoast.com, that's where you can get to everything. Uh, Justin.tv slash SpookySouthCoast. Is there anything else we need to pimp out before we go? I'll just look for that information on the 12th and the 26th for the uh, other tours in in June at Town State Forest. Email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com if you're interested in getting involved. MySpace. Can we still use that? Hey. Come on, man. It's the Facebook era. <laughs> I still don't know how to use Facebook. <laughs> but, yes, that's right. MySpace.com slash Spooky South Coast. I noticed you're on Facebook, Matt Moniz. Yes. Because when I use it on my cell phone, all of a sudden it downloads everybody's Facebook information. 
So it's taking over the world. All right, well, at least as far as we know, we'll still be here unless this uh, gas gets us before we go. Uh, until then, we want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, yeah, that's a, that's in a many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. My favorite is how he how it's poses or at least until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is.